chapter 33 this morning, and the uh, the children are dismissed uh, to Children's Church. We're going to be reading Exodus chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said uh, to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people, for if a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Uh, Now Moses used to take the the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off uh, from the camp, and he called it the Tent of Meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch until Moses had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses uh, when and when the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know uh, whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover it with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand 
and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and heavenly father, Lord, uh, we do come and ask that you would speak to us from your word. Uh, We ask that you would watch over us. We ask that you would help us, Lord, uh, and we ask that you would uh, give us instruction here uh, from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this happen with any of your kids, but sometimes uh, just your presence as a parent uh, can calm your children. Uh, For example, a thunderstorm is, is going through and your children... Uh, perhaps are scared. Maybe they even come running uh, to your bed and want to climb in. Maybe you go into their room and climb in their bed uh, because uh, they are crying. But your presence brings calm as a parent. Your presence brings assurance to them uh, as as a parent. There is safety in the arms of good parents and children recognize that. We're in a passage of scripture that talks about the presence of the Lord, I think, in four uh, distinct ways. The presence of the Lord is the main theme this morning, and we need the Lord's presence with us and and in our lives and and going before us and watching over us and, and caring for us. All of our efforts are in vain if the Lord's presence is not with us. So we've broken this down into to four uh, statements about God's presence, and I've left some blanks in the outline, which I normally don't do, uh, so you can fill them in as we go along. The first this morning is the lack of God's presence, the lack of God's presence in this first section of verses. So the lack of God's presence brings great sadness. The lack of God's presence brings sorrow among the people of God. God says to these people that he cannot go with them because of their stubbornness. Now, remember, this is right after they have made the golden calf. They have bowed down and worshipped this idol. They have committed this grotesque idolatry. And God's wrath broke out against some of them. And now God is saying to those that are left, I can't. Go with you. Look at verse uh, one, two and three. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to your offspring. I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing in milk with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. He had called them a stiff-necked people in the last chapter as well. It's it's, uh, imagery that comes from farming animals. Uh, And if you've ever tried to get a big, strong horse or ox or something to do something that it doesn't want to, you know what a stiff-necked animal is. They, they lock up and their neck will not move. And normally, you know, you take a horse maybe by the bridle and, and you'll try to lead it and turn its neck or you'll, you'll pull it down to you a little bit and bring it along. But if that animal becomes stiff-necked, if it becomes stubborn, it can just dig in, lock its legs, if you will, but more importantly, just lock its neck. If you're riding a horse and the horse suddenly becomes stiff-necked, it's not going to let you turn it to the right or to the left. 
It's going to assume that it knows what's best and it's going to do what it wants. And this is a picture of how we can be stubborn with God, assuming that we know what's best, assuming that our ways are right. God's not going to tell me what to do. I know what I need to do in this situation. And instead of being someone who yields, being someone who turns, being someone who submits to the Lord and says, this is his word and I need to follow it. Stiff necked is when you uh, another imagery would be like you dig your feet in. You you lock your legs and you brace yourself and you say, I'm not going anywhere. And God has said this of his people. They are stiff necked. That's what sin and rebellion ultimately is. Rather than having a soft heart that is easily guided and turned by God, it is hard and it is stubborn and it is stiff necked. When the people heard this, verse four this disastrous word. So they, they recognize, oh, man, this is horrible that God would call a stiff neck. It says they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. So they did not go out and celebrate this. Woohoo! God called a stiff neck. All right. No, they were saddened by it. And then it says, for the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. And now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So I think what's going on here is not only did they not put them on, but those who had them on already, maybe from previous celebrations or whatever, also go along and, and take them off. I don't think it's contradictory. I think it's just a picture of what's happening uh, in a large community here, though. The idea is God in his holiness cannot go and dwell with his people and walk among them because of his people's sin. His wrath might break out against him. He might consume them. A just and fair and righteous anger might come from God upon his people. You know how sometimes as a parent, you have to rightly punish your children because they've disobeyed. There was a situation this just popped into my head, so this might be dangerous to share. There was this situation when I was a child. And I was getting in trouble from my dad. And I decided I was going to be stiff-necked. And basically, I was getting a spanking. And I told my dad, that doesn't hurt. Because uh, I was stubborn and I was digging in. Well, let me just say, we went down into the basement uh, and my dad applied the rod of discipline to the seat of correction. <laughs> and I learned... <laughs> Not to be stiff-necked. Um, my dad uh, was a good, kind, and loving father. So don't take that out of any kind of, of wrong context. But the point was, my stubbornness needed to be corrected. And my stubbornness was actually, I don't even remember what I did uh, that I was getting in trouble for. But my stubbornness was actually worse uh, than the thing that I did. And sometimes it's that way with us. You know, we have a sin and the Lord is trying to show it to us and he's trying to bring correction and and we get stubborn and we don't want to listen and we dig in and, and the problem becomes worse than the initial sin that we could have easily repented of when we when we harden our hearts, 
when we become stubborn and we say, I am not going to yield. And we need to remember here that that this is God's goodness that he would discipline his children. And he's actually going to be protecting them so that they don't experience his full holiness confronting their sin, which would leave them uh, destroyed. The holiness of God bringing judgment. God says, I can't go in your midst. Now, of course, this brings uh, great sadness, and this is why they're not supposed to celebrate. They should want God to go with them, but they are mourning now because they see their sin. And this is a reminder to us that sin separates us from the presence of God. If you have never placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are dead in your sins and your sins separate you from God. And you stand as an enemy of God, an enemy which God will judge. But the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us so that God in his great love, even though we were his enemies, sent his son to pay the price for our sin so that God could have fellowship with us. Our sin separates us from God's presence But God in his work is bringing his presence to us so that he can cover our sin and dwell with us. As an unbeliever, we can be stiff necked. If you refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and and receive the forgiveness of sins, that is by definition being stubborn. You hear the word of God. You see what God has has said he has done. You hear the cross. You find out about this free forgiveness and you say, that's not me. I don't need that. Or you say, I'm not really that bad of a sinner. Or that sounds so harsh to talk about God having anger and wrath for sin. That's being stiff necked. And the Lord wants us to yield, to repent, to bend the knee, as it were. Sometimes as believers, We fall into the trap of being stiff-necked, stubborn, or just slow to learn our lessons. We see the Word of God. We know what the Word of God says we should do in in a particular situation. And we drag our feet in doing it. We try to find excuses. Well, that doesn't apply to me. Well, that was written 2,000 years ago, and you don't understand what it's like to live in the 21st century. And so we can sometimes, even as believers, hear the word of God and become stiff-necked towards it. We need to ask the Lord to be at work in our hearts, that we wouldn't be stubborn, that we would be quick to respond to the word of God, that we would have a tender heart towards his leading and what he has said in the word. And so ask yourself this question this morning, where in my life is my heart resistant to the truth of God. Second, this morning, as we go into this idea of God's presence, we're going to see the tent of God's presence. So we're going to see how God does come and commune with with Moses in a tent outside the camp. Now, eventually they will build the tabernacle and they will put the tabernacle in the center of of the camp of Israel and the glory of God will come down and the tabernacle with its veil will kind of protect God's people from uh, the, the onslaught of God's glory, but also assure them of the presence. 
But until that tabernacle is built, Moses is meeting in a it's kind of like a pre tabernacle, I guess you could say. They call it a tent of meeting, but it's not the tent of meeting that they're going to build later on, namely the tabernacle. But he's doing this outside the camp rather than inside the camp. I think it implies uh, that the people of God still have sin in their midst. So we have the tent of God's presence and Moses pitches this tent verses seven and eight. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and and each would stand at the door of the tent, their tent, his tent, and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. So this must this must have been a pretty cool uh, processional. If you've ever seen like a, a royal processional where everybody stands and and the royalty comes walking by and as they come by that they turn almost like a almost like on a wedding day when the bride walks down the aisle, everybody's attention is focused on that bride. Well, here's Moses walking through the camp. Everybody knows he's going out to the tent of meeting. And, and you can almost imagine uh, the, the kind of whisper going through the camp, you know. Hey, hey, Moses is going out to the tent. Come on, get out here. And so everybody is kind of rushing to the the door of their tent and they stand at the door of their tent and they watch Moses go by. I think it's a picture of reverence and respect that they know Moses is going to meet with God, because later on, they'll also uh, bow down and worship. So I think they are understanding that God is coming and communing and they're showing the reverence and respect that God deserves. So we we do note again that this tent is outside the camp. It's not where it ultimately needs to be, where God is at the center of his people when they build the tabernacle. But at least I, I guess we could say in a sense it's better than nothing. So Moses would meet with God in the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. So this pillar cloud that symbolizes the glory of God that had also uh, descended onto the mountain that had led them out of Egypt. Now it descends to the doorway of the tent and God comes and he meets with Moses. Look at what it says. And when the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Just remember one chapter earlier, they were rising up and reveling and partying and worshiping a golden calf. And now God in his graciousness is bringing his presence down onto this tent before Moses. And they themselves are worshiping at the, their own tents, looking outside the camp where, where God is appearing and celebrating the presence of God. Thus, the Lord, verse 11, used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would depart from the tent. So we have here the glory of God being present with Moses and and the people worshiping. And it says God will speak. He's speaking with Moses face to face. He's he's talking to Moses as you would talk with a friend. Now, I don't know what the conversation looked like. I don't know if God does small talk. 
You know, like, hey, how's the weather today? Uh, Well, God, uh, you tell me you made it. Um, But the point is, there's an intimacy here. There's there's a communication going on. There is a friendship between Moses and God. And that's a friendship that each one of us, if we are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we partake in. So James 2.23 says this, The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Jesus says in the Gospel of John that I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. It is a a high and, and holy title that God would look at us, sinners as we are. And not only does he redeem us and, and save us, as if that wasn't enough, he says, you're a friend. Another analogy would be he adopts us as his children, a son, a daughter. You think of, of the story of the prodigal son and how the, the son has gone off and squandered his wealth and he co- is coming back to the father and he, and he says, you know, if I can just be a hired hand in my dad's house, that'll be enough. And as he's running back, the dad sees him from a long way off and runs out to meet him and puts his best robe on him and puts his, his signet ring on him and welcomes him back into the family. The son is treated as a son again. It would be just enough for God to just let us into heaven. Just... Forgive our sins. Just just let me be a servant in your kingdom. And yet, what does God do for us? In the redemption that he has brought about in the Lord Jesus Christ, he makes us his friend. We have fellowship with the Father and the Son, 1 John 1, 3 and 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of, of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The tent of God's presence is the way that God comes down and makes himself a friend to Moses. It's interesting that when Jesus comes down, the scriptures say the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten. That we don't see this cloud pillar come down into a tent. We see the Lord Jesus Christ come down and dwell in our midst as a living, breathing human being being truly God and at the same time truly man. And we see him go to the cross and we see him die for our sins and he rises again from the dead, all so that we can have peace with God and be his friend. Only God's presence, active towards us savingly, will make us a friend with God. Another biblical word is reconciliation. We go from being enemies of God to being at peace with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And in that peace, we're a friend. Third, this morning, we have the need of God's presence. We need God's presence. 
Sometimes I think we don't think about our need of God and his presence in our life. And so Moses here preparing to go into the tabernacle or excuse me, into the promised land is saying, I don't want to go unless you're present with me, God. Don't send me to do this task unless you are here, unless you are walking with me, unless you are empowering me. Your presence is what makes all the difference. This is why if we are walking in sin, we won't experience the presence of God. We won't have fellowship and communion with God. Even as a believer, our communion is disrupted when we are consciously and purposely living in sin. So Moses asked the Lord, verse 12 and 13, Moses said to the Lord, say, see, you say to me, bring this people, bring up this people. So Moses is saying, look, God, you've told me what to do. Bring up this people. And then he says, but you have not let me known who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. This goes back, I think, some to chapter 32, where where God says kind of in effect, I'm going to destroy the nation of Israel and I will make you, Moses, a great nation. And Moses pleads with God as a mediator and says, don't don't do that. You made this promise for your people. Don't let them be destroyed. God had found favor in Moses and was going to expand Moses's uh, kingdom and family. But Moses pleads for the people. And so Moses here is saying, I found favor in your sight. But he's also reminding God, you know, consider, too, that this nation is your people. This phrase here, I know you by name. It denotes intimacy of relationship. Now, on the one hand, right, God knows everybody, right? He knows everything. So so. He knows everybody's name like God is not if, if it's probably bad to say it as if I was going to say if God was at a party, he wouldn't forget anybody's name. That's probably not the right way to say it. But but you know, how sometimes you're going around and you're like, I know that person. I know them. What's their name? I've talked with them. I've had them over. And it just it happens to me. It just pops out of my head and, and my mind starts going like a mental Rolodex until I get to that to that name. So if I'm ever slow, it's not that I forgot you. It's it's the mental Rolodex is turning. It's, it's not like that kind of knowing the name. This is knowing the person. This is that intimacy of fellowship and, and relationship. This is beyond just knowing something about them, their name. But the name, I think, symbolizing their 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 identity, their who they are, who they really are. Names in the ancient world were, were hugely significant. That's why sometimes you often have characters in the Bible that have more than one name. You know, they have the given name and they have the thing that they're called by. Uh, it's kind of like when you're on a baseball team. You know, you have your name and sometimes you have the nickname that you picked up because you miss the fly balls or you always, you know, slide into first base or whatever it might be. Well, nobody slides into first base, but you know what I mean. Uh, you get this known by this character and so they call you this name. Here it's this idea that God really and truly knows Moses. You know my name. You know what's 
most intimate about me. You know my coming and my going. You know the thoughts that are going through my head. You know how I think. You know what I need. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a child of God, God knows you. It's this idea also, again, back to this idea of friendship. You know your friends. And the closer your friend is to you, the more you would say, yeah, I, I know that. You know how they think. You know what's going through their minds sometimes even before they think it. Husbands and wives, you know each other. Galatians 4.9, but now that you have come to know God, it's a picture of salvation. But then Paul says, or rather be known by God. Salvation is being known by God. 1 Corinthians 8.3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Revelation 2.17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So here's this idea of we're going to be known by God and we're going to get a special name in heaven. And it's going to be precious because it's something that God has given to us because he knows us and he has redeemed us. And we're going to be the only ones who know it. You are a child of God if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. And God knows you. He knows your needs. He knows when you cry out. He knows your struggles. He knows what you are waiting for. He knows your fears. He knows you better than you know yourself. That is God's presence in our lives. Think of how intimate it is. This isn't just abstract. And so Moses is going to ask for for deep fellowship with God. Show me your ways, Moses is going to say. Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And so we'll see in verse 19, God says, I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim my name before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. Exodus 34, 5 to 6, when God shows his glory to Moses, this is what we hear. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God of mercy and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting iniquity on the fathers, on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We'll get into this some the next week, but notice here it's it's about the contrast. We are responsible for our own sins. That's not what this passage is saying. It's about the contrast. Sometimes sin has lasting effects, multiple generations, two, three, four generations down. You think of someone who's an alcoholic and they're children are affected by it or someone who was abusive and and the children and the children's children are affected by it. 
But when God shows faithfulness, when God shows his loyalty to his covenant, he does not break it to the thousands generations. He is faithful and he is merciful. This is his character. And Moses says, I want to know you, to know your ways, to know who you are and how you act. And this is what the Lord shows him. This is a prayer that we should pray. To know the ways of our God. Listen to Psalm 25 verses 4 through 7. Make known to me, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation, for I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Again, that language from Exodus. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Part of asking to know the Lord is asking to see his steadfast love. That he is faithful. That God never breaks his covenant. He will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter what is going on in your life, no matter who in your life is is letting you down, God is steadfast and immovable, abounding in love and faithfulness. It's the character of God. God assures Moses then that his presence will be with him. Verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This must have been just such a joy to hear. You're going out. You're going to go into the promised land. You're going into the unknown. You don't know what kind of enemies you're going to face. Uh, You know there are giants in the land. What does God say? My presence is with you. I don't know what kind of hardship you're going through right now. I don't know what kinds of struggles you have, what kind of doubts or fears. But trust that the Lord's presence is with you. He sends his presence through the Lord Jesus Christ and then through the power of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus says, I am with you to the end of the age. I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now, our responsibility is to walk in the ways of the Lord and to repent of our sins and and keep a short account, as it were, with, with God. But when you have those moments of desperate crying, God's presence is our comfort. Moses will not go, then he says, without the presence of the Lord. So Moses here, I think, has a a bit of uh, boldness. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. I don't want to set out on this journey, Lord, unless you are with me. I think we can all identify with that when God calls us or we feel God leading us to do something difficult and we don't want to do it. The default is hopefully not to reject God, but to say, "Okay, God, but if you want this done, you're going to have to do it. 
You're going to have to go with me. I can't accomplish this on my own. It's a it's a confession of weakness. It's a confession of not wanting to be alone. We want the Lord with us. We want him guiding us and directing us and walking with us. And Moses says, for how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people. In other words, part of this is the nations that we're going to drive out need to see that we're different. And the only way that we'll see that we're different is if your presence is with us. As the church of God, we need to be different than the world. And the only way we're going to be different from the world that is around us is if God's presence is with us. The only way we're going to flee sin is if God's presence is with us. The only way that we're going to have genuine Christian love, developing the fruit of the Spirit, love and unity, is if God's presence is with us. What keeps the church in harmony and in peace? It's God's presence with us. When God sets apart his people, he puts his presence with them. He makes them distinct. So it's interesting that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about not just the individual as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians, he says your body, you individually, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why we shouldn't engage uh, in sexual immorality. But then in 2 Corinthians, he says corporately, we are the temple, not the four walls and the roof, but the body gathered has the presence of the Lord and is like a temple. Second Corinthians six, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among you and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And again, we have in the passage that God knows Moses. Look at verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that I have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. God is saying to Moses, just an incredible comfort. Yes, I will be with you. I will go with you. God's people did not find favor in God's sight because they were holy, good, and righteous. God's people found favor in his sight because God gave it as a gift. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. It's not that Moses wasn't a sinner. It's that God was gracious. God was certainly pleased that Moses was depending upon him in that very moment. But God had favor upon Moses because God is good, not because Moses is good. They found favor in his sight then because, in part, he was keeping his covenant promises. He was going to set apart the nation as he had promised Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So it's not that Israel was good either. 
It's that God was good and God made a promise. And when God makes a promise, he doesn't break it. Again, this is assurance to us. I know your name. God knows you, brother and sister in Christ. God knows you. You think of the most intimate relationship you have on this earth with with a person, maybe a spouse, maybe a friend, uh, maybe someone else in your life, a relative. God knows you more than that person knows you. Lastly, this morning, we have the glory of God's presence. So Moses asked to see the glory of, of the Lord, the glory of God's presence. Verse 18, please show me your glory. Verse 19, he says, I will make my goodness pass before you. So what is the glory of God that he's going to see? He's going to see the goodness of God and he's going to hear the name of God. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. This is the glory of God. This is his goodness. And this is God revealing himself that he is good. God passes then before Moses. He says, you cannot see my face. So there's an interesting dynamic here. There's that imagery of God talked with Moses face to face like with a friend. And yet God didn't show his face to Moses. So there was the intimate communion of conversation. But there wasn't a full revealing of the glory of God. Because what does God say to Moses here? No man shall see me and live. You cannot stand before God and the full onslaught of his glory, the full power of his majesty radiating out and live. It's it's. If you've ever seen in the movies when they have like a nuclear explosion and how it just incinerates things all around it. Imagine something way more powerful than that. The glory of God. How can man stand in the presence of God? What does God say he'll do then? He says, I'll place you where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand. uh, I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face you shall not see. Now, we're not to be overly literal with this language. God doesn't have a literal physical hand. God doesn't have a literal physical front and back. God is infinite, right? Uh, God is omnipresent. So, so you can't ever like, well, I'm running around to the backside of God now. Oh, here's his left side. Here's his right side. It's a picture. Moses can't see the full face of God's glory, the full frontal exposure of it, if you will. But Moses is going to get a glimpse of what God looks like. God will cover his hand. He'll pass by. Moses will know that God is there and moving by. And as God moves on, Moses, the hand will be removed and Moses will get a glimpse of God. There's there's protection here in what God is doing. But there's also goodness that God is letting Moses see something of the character and the power and the majesty of God. I think there's two reasons here why 
we can't stand before God and see him face to face. The obvious one is that we are sinners. And sin cannot stand in the presence of God. You remember in the book of Isaiah when, when uh, Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord and the glory of the Lord's, it, it fills the temple like a, a train of a robe filling down into the temple from heaven. And, and he sees the threshold that shakes and fills with smoke. And what does Isaiah say? Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I can't see God as he is because I'm a sinner. The second reason I think we should say we can't see God as he is is because we are finite and he is infinite. We can't ever take in all that God is because he is infinite. We can't contain God. We can't wrap our minds around God. We can't see the fullness of his glory because we are finite creatures. And you think about what heaven is going to be like. We are going to be growing in our knowledge of God daily throughout all eternity. And we will never exhaust the knowledge of God. There will always be more to come to know about God. That is his glory. That is what is amazing about him. We sing in the hymn, you know, when we've been there 10,000 years, we've known less days to sing his praise. Why are we going to keep singing his praise? Because we're not going to get bored with God. We're not going to say, well, now I know everything there is to know about God. Let's go find something else to do that's fun. God is infinite. And so is his majesty and so is his glory. And I think if there's one thing that we've lost in our day and age is this picture of of the majesty, the infinite majesty of God. As we think about how to apply this, I want to take it back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about what God has done in our redemption. God does make us a friend through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God does show us his glory and reveal himself to us. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known, meaning you can't see God, but the son has made who is God has made God known. Paul will say That when we have the transformation of the Holy Spirit in us, we are with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That the working of redemption is God changing you so that you reflect the glory of God. Just like Paul saw Jesus in his glory on the Damascus road and it changed him. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you see who Jesus is. You see his glory on the cross and in his resurrection. And you say, this is God. He's made himself known. I don't need to be hidden in the cleft of the rock because I can look to the cross and say, this is God dying for me and the person of the son. According to his human nature, he dies. And finally, the culmination of redemption Listen to these words from Revelation. No longer will there be anything accursed, 
But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I ask you this morning, do you hunger to know the ways of God? To understand who he is? To pray that psalm, Psalm 25, make your ways known to me. To even ask him, show me your glory. It's not going to be in some big uh, glory cloud like with Moses. It's going to be in the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's how God comes to us. And that's how God has made us his friend. But do you hunger in your life for the presence of the Lord? There is no hope without God being present. And whatever you're going through, God delights in coming to his children and comforting them and being present with them. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that you would be present with us, that you would come down and show the work of your spirit in our hearts, in our lives, that you would transform us to be more like Jesus, to bear his image as we see him for who he is. Oh, Lord, we are a sinful people. And even as believers, we continue to to struggle with sin and, and sin against others. And we need forgiveness. We need it from you. We need it from those that we've wronged. But ultimately, we need your presence to go before us, to bring us to be able to do the hard tasks, to be able to walk in your ways. Show us your ways, O Lord, and give us a delight. Comfort us with your presence that comes to us through the work of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.